Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Today's lecture, Environmental Chemodynamics, uh, is a continuation of the series, uh, short lecture series that we have here in, in the ETOX course about environmental chemistry. And what we try to do today is actually take a lot of what you learned in freshman chemistry and pack it into, uh, oh, a dozen or so slides just so that you're reviewed, well-reviewed, in terms of the context of considering how chemicals move in our environment. What happens? What's the energy dynamics, the bookkeeping, so to speak, of chemicals in the environment? Tell you a short story here. This past week, uh, my wife and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And a uh, good husband that I am, hopefully, uh, sent her uh, some roses. And uh, she was remarking to me uh, how wonderful the smell was uh, and nodding in agreement as a dutiful husband, thinking in the back of my mind from my PCAM training, ah, this is thermodynamics at work. This is, in fact, fugacity, the fleeing tendency of those aromatic molecules from the rose through the air and into my olfactory senses. In a certain sense, what we're going to try to do today is perhaps uh, as, uh, uh, not as uh, romantic as perhaps roses, but it is a way to understand why things happen in the environment. Why, for example, when we have a point source release of an environmental chemical, a contaminant of concern, why in fact there may be receptors downwind, downstream, across the pond that in fact are at risk, the risk has to do with thermodynamics and also the kinetics of the chemicals involved in this particular release. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to try to have you do is list the thermodynamic functions that are used to describe the various energy states of molecules in an environmental system. We talked about the importance of energy and energy drivers last time when we looked at abiotic mechanism. What we're going to do this time is take a look at energy states of molecules and the reactions that those molecules can undergo in terms of our construct, our construct called thermodynamics, where we have attempted to understand the nature around us. We'll try to do this by understanding the relationship of something called Gibbs free energy. You should recall this from freshman chemistry, the big G, the delta G, the free energy, and it's relating, related term chemical potential and how these terms actually help us understand the transfer or this various transformation of chemicals within an environmental system. I'd like to have you develop a basic understanding of a term called fugacity and its role in environmental transformations. Just like my roses, fugacity is the fleeing tendency. What makes those aromatic molecules that are held tightly in that rose actually hit my nose? It has to transport from the rose across the, the bridge of air and into my nose. We'll try to have you as well uh, define activity and its relationship to concentration. All semester we've talked about risks and dose and concentration terminology. What we're going to do is at least find out or review the concept of activity the fact that we have to have at least a little bit of understanding that what we're dealing with in this complex natural world around us is in fact a non-ideal situation. So from an ideality point of view, concentration terminology, milligrams per kilogram, is a good way to think about things. But
but in the non-ideal world, the actual complexity of this real world around us, we have to at least be able to consider that there are relationships in terms of concentration that are not exact. And this is where activity helps us at least understand that. We'll try to also have you understand the concept of energy bookkeeping. If you recall again from, from freshman chemistry, you had to look at a series of chemical reactions. Sometimes those were electrochemical reactions, if I go back to the Nernst equation, to decide that if you put uh, a series of chemicals together, whether the reaction was going to be spontaneous or not, or whether you had to put energy into that uh, chemical reaction to make it work to the other side. You had heated up, for example, or in the cases of photochemical reactions, one of the chemicals had to absorb a photon to have sufficient energy to allow for the reaction. It's an endothermic reaction. It requires energy input. We'll talk about this and its relationship to Gibbs free energy, and also we'll introduce again for you or review the terms enthalpy or heat energy and entropy, the confusion, so to speak, of a molecular state uh, in phase transformation or chemical reaction. Once again, we'll also have you try to develop a basic understanding of what you learned in freshman chemistry about chemical kinetics, and especially first order and pseudo first order chemical kinetics. Uh, these uh, chemical kinetics, uh, first order, pseudo first order, are the most important representations of how fast things happen in uh, environmental chemistry. Um, obviously, you'll have to have a respect for the fact that there is other potential com kinetics out there, complex multi-stage reactivity. But in terms of uh, understanding environmental chemistry, at least at this level, if you have a solid understanding of first-order chemical kinetics, you have mastered most of the domain of chemical kinetics uh, associated with the environment. There are other aspects to this. Uh, if you review your freshman chemistry, remember integrated rate expressions, half-lives, and temperature dependence through the Arrhenius uh, equation. We'll again throw that at you just as again to tweak your memories uh, so that you're aware of this as we discuss environmental chemistry. We're also going to then switch over into environmental modeling. Uh, thermodynamics is a model of the natural world around us. It's a way we try to understand how and why things happen. Uh, we told you that this, this uh, lecture was about the whys of environmental chemistry, uh, why things happen. Uh, here, in terms of modeling, uh, we're going to let you at least take a peek inside how people that manage environmental toxicology and environmental chemistry try to reduce the complexity of a natural system through modeling. We introduced the initial concepts of modeling in our uh, risk assessment lectures, the idea being, that, again, that we take this uh, incredibly complex risk basis and try to reduce it down to the fundamental variables that are most important, that are best descriptive of this complex system around us. We have the same sort of mentality in terms of reducing down the complexity of nature when we talk about environmental chemistry. We'll try to do that through an, uh, increasing your understanding of the partitioning of chemicals and how partition coefficients are used in describing environmental systems. We've already tried to introduce that in our fundamental toxicology uh, discussions when we talked about lipophilicity and octanol water partition coefficients. The octanol water partition coefficient is a very simple exercise where we have a test tube that's full half of 
octanol, which is a very uh, lipid-like uh, alcohol substance, and water. And so this oil, octanol, uh, floats on water. And in fact, by putting a chemical in there, we can see it, the chemical partition between the two phases. And that tells us a little bit about how it might behave in a uh, complex natural system. These again are approaches to modeling these complex chemicals in a complex environment. We'll try to have you understand some of the basic approaches to modeling chemodynamics and the various uh, limitations and various uh, usefulness of all of these models in terms of again trying to not only understand but more importantly to predict uh, certain outcomes. And those predictions are important in terms of setting up a basis for risk assessment. Well, environmental chemodynamics. Chemodynamics may or may not be a term that you're familiar with. It's a little bit of a synthetic term that uh, talks about chemical reactivity in this context in the environment. Uh, it actually uh, pulls together the concepts of thermodynamics and kinetics uh, into one world word. And so this kind of just lets us know that we're kind of dealing with these model systems or trying to understand nature. These processes are very important in being able to describe the fate and transport of environmental chemicals. Uh, again, the idea that we want to understand not only nature around us, but the impacts of natural activities and human activities in terms of preventing or limiting or mitigating contamination and therefore toxicology. You got to recall uh, one of the underpinnings of this lecture and the whole aspects of uh, thermodynamics is that energy balance will drive the system. Whether or not a chemical reaction is endothermic or exothermic will tell us a lot about whether or not certain chemistry will happen. We'll try to actually illustrate that with some uh, chemistry or chemical reactivity in our natural world that is very allowable but in fact kinetically slow. Phase transfer and chemical reaction dynamics uh, help uh, in terms of the transfer of chemicals from one phase to another. Uh, think about it, uh, next time you use cologne or perfume or deodorant, uh, you have a solid or liquid solution that has a fragrance in it. Uh, you apply that and uh, within seconds or minutes later, you smell uh, the desirable odors, uh, the various chemical combinations that the fragrance chemists have put into the solid or liquid state and allowed for a phase transfer, a very pleasant phase transfer if you look at the alternative in terms of standard body odor or sweaty uh, underarms. When we talk about environmental chemodynamics, we are very uh, interested in interfacial and intercompartment transport. Uh, we've talked about uh, how we like to take nature and in terms of a modeling approach, divide it up into little boxes. When you think about uh, how we could do that, think about, for instance, uh, dividing two boxes uh, in a contaminated water system, a lake that has uh, an undesirable uh, volatile chemical in it. Uh, one of the boxes will be the water itself. The other box uh, will be the air uh, over that water. What's the interfacial intercompartment transport and what are the drivers in terms of the release of these volatile molecules? We hope to describe those here today. 
Now, thermodynamics is the study of systems at equilibrium. And although uh, uh, physicists and physical chemists do a pretty good job of coming up with uh, systems to uh, equations and models to describe non-equilibrium thermodynamics, primarily, especially at the level of uh, thermodynamics that you've had in, in your preparation for this course, we can consider thermodynamics to be equilibrium uh, situations. These are reversible processes. Equilibrium implies that what can go in one direction can go in the opposite direction as well. So for example, uh, when we have uh, a solid phase contaminant in a uh, aqueous uh, environment, there will be an equilibrium uh, concentration that will be established over time. Uh, this equilibrium concentration will be driven by primary thermodynamics. We use thermodynamics to describe the energy status of the molecules uh, in an environmental system. Uh, again, we're talking environmental chemistry here, not just lab bench chemistry. There are various thermodynamic functions. Again, these are constructs, way we have tried to describe this natural world around us over the past 100, 200 years. Uh, we've tried to identify why things happen. And so in a certain sense, physical chemists and physicists have come up with a set of mathematical representations of why things happen. We'll review here today chemical potential. Uh, uh, you'll use the term mu to identify uh, chemical potential. Uh, fugacity, which is a new term for you, or the fleeing potential, uh, why we smell the pleasant smell in roses. Activity coefficient, uh, most of you should recall this from freshman chemistry. Gibbs free energy, the big G. And then it's related terms, the heat energy or enthalpy of a chemical reaction and the entropy S of a chemical reaction. Now, we have a relationship in terms of describing uh, molecules and their internal energy. It's called uh, chemical potential. All molecules have these internal energies. They're vibration, uh, rotation, translation. Uh, they have uh, external energies as well. When I used to teach freshman chemistry, again, I used to have the students uh, stand up and uh, rotate and vibrate their arms uh, back and forth as a demonstration of these complex energy levels uh, that are associated with molecular states. Now, those energies that those molecules have are environmentally related. When I talk in this context, it's the local intimate environment of the molecule. And that, uh, th that uh, environment has to do with its temperature, uh, the uh, ambient pressure, and the chemical composition, what your neighbors uh, look like and act like in terms of uh, an environmental chemical system. Now, the energy content uh, of a chemical is a population concept, okay? So it's the collection of molecules, uh, but we talk about uh, chemicals in terms of changing uh, from an independent chemical point of view. The population of a chemical and all the other substances uh, present uh, is another way of talking about the total free energy of the system. We can relate free energy to chemical potential. Now think of this, you know, in terms of a model. Um, if I were to uh, take a molecule and add it to a collection of molecules, uh, you will add a uh, change. You will change uh, the total free energy of the system. Uh, it's a fairly complex process. It's population-based, but it's the incremental energy as these additional molecules that are added to the total free energy of the system. 
Um, this is uh, one of the fundamental descriptors of thermodynamics. Uh, for the next few slides, I'll put a little bit of differential equations at you. Um, these are very, very basic uh, to translate these for those of you that haven't had enough uh, uh, differential equations in your uh, mathematical background. All we're talking with these Ds here, uh, the deltas, delta G, and this is an energy term in kilojoules, um, changing for each mole of a uh, particular molecule that's being added defined at some temperature, pressure, and a uh, number of molecules. And we're just defining that the change in free energy for the change in population of these molecules is defined as a chemical potential term. This chemical potential is an energy term per mole of molecules okay, in the system. And so that's just a way to, to do this. Essentially, we're collecting this in this integrated expression here that the free energy, again, defined at a particular pressure, temperature, and a collection of the molecular environment that this molecule is added to is, in fact, a sum of the chemical potential. It's a population concept of all of the molecules in the system. Uh, you won't be using chemical potential to do much, but it's nice to uh, understand it as, again, one of the fundamental underpinnings of chemical thermodynamics. Well, as it turns out, we have no idea of how to assess the individual chemical potentials of uh, chemicals added to a system. So what we do is we infer reference or standard states. So we define these standard states. And then what we can do is look at the change that uh, happens when we add this. So we can always talk about the change in terms of thermodynamics, but we can't determine absolute energy levels. So what happens in terms of uh, uh, coming about with these reference states is that we have to understand that there will be a spontaneous transfer of chemical and thermal energy uh, until equilibrium is reached. So we, we have an energized system. It's like a roller coaster at the top of uh, the hill. Uh, it's going to go downhill until it uh, reaches the bottom of that plateau. If it has sufficient energy, it'll actually continue perhaps up the next hill. The chemical potential can be used to quantify the tendency of this compound to actually uh, go through some sort of transformation or transfer to another system. Uh, these absolute values, as I said, uh, cannot be calculated, but we can uh, define the uh, chemical potentials uh, from changes in a reference state uh, that can be uh, defined. A reference state, uh, for example, uh, one might be an infinite dilution, pure liquid state, uh, and we define these typically with standard uh, chemical conditions like pressure and temperature. You'll hear, you'll recall from freshman chemistry, STP, uh, standard temperature and pressure uh, definitions. Temperature of 298 degrees Kelvin, for example, is the standard temperature and one atmosphere for pressure. And that will yield a standard chemical potential always signified uh, with a zero. And so we can determine or define this uh, standard chemical potential in a reference state. And that will be a point of comparison for the starting and final states uh, of a molecular change. And so we can use this as a basis to calculate whether or not something is going to be spontaneous or a chemical reaction that will be non-spontaneous and therefore require energy inputs.
Another term uh, that we're use uh, that is very useful in environmental chemistry is the concept of fugacity. Uh, fugacity is a little bit more, uh, a little bit easier to to understand if you just ref think of it as the fleeing tendency, uh, the fleeing, the migration, the energy uh, uh, released to equilibrium uh, that allows for uh, chemicals. Uh, if you put a, a f drop of food coloring in a glass of water. Uh, at the moment that uh, very concentrated solution of food coloring uh, hits the water, you'll see a, a very dark, bright spot if it's a red color at the top of uh, the, uh, the glass. Uh, over the next few seconds and definitely over the next few minutes, you'll see that red color develop throughout that entire glass. What has happened, there's uh, a certain amount of energy that uh, has been released from a concentrated state to a dilute state, so there's a, a fleeing tendency there. We typically will talk about fugacity when we're talking about release of volatile substrates. We can define um, certain terms in the fugacity F equation where we have a fugacity coefficient and a mole fraction. Uh, how much, what's the concentration uh, differential? Uh, if, uh, in fact, uh, you're sitting in a, uh, or you have a, s a system that is uh, somewhat saturated in a chemical, you're not going to see a fleeing because, in fact, you have an equilibrium balance in that solution. Um, we can define P sub I as the partial pressure of gas I. Remember partial pressure from your freshman chemistry. But uh, you have a relationship here that the fugacity is equal to this coefficient uh, times its mole fraction times its partial pressure. This fugacity coefficient is approximately equal to 1, and so fugacity is about equal to partial pressure. So if you recall, again, from freshman chemistry discussions, what partial pressure is, uh, the mole fraction of gas in a collection of gases, um, then fugacity is directly proportional as related to that partial pressure. Now, it turns out that liquids and solids uh, also have uh, vapor pressures, and uh, they can also have a fleeing tendency, uh, a fugacity. And we can actually work out the thermodynamics of uh, the fleeing tendency of both liquids and solids. Uh, we can do this by having a uh, reference state partial uh, pressure, P sub I, zero. Um, and then defining uh, the terms, uh, this gamma sub i, which is the activity coefficient. Activity coefficients, uh, again, recalling freshman chemistry, account for non-ideal behavior. And so we can come up with fugacity being equal to this activity coefficient times the partial pressure of uh, the uh, vapor state of that liquid. And the same thing for a pure solid, um, the activity coefficient of that pure solid. And that's proportional uh, to the uh, uh, reference state of the partial pressure of that solid. Uh, this allows us to develop a fugacity term where we have the activity coefficient, uh, again, defined by that partial pressure, which we saw before, as being the mole fraction times the partial pressure of that uh, pure liquid or pure solid. And this, again, has the ability, since the activity coefficient is uh, close to 1, uh, sometimes we can uh, have a direct relationship between uh, fugacity of uh, various liquids and solids. This is, again, just helpful for us understanding why things happen in an environmental chemistry context.
Activity uh, is uh, a way to describe how a compound in a given state uh, is compared to a reference state. Uh, we like to think of activity as an apparent concentration. Uh, it's uh, thinking of activity as concentration is justified in most cases, although you have to recall that you are dealing with a non-ideal world and therefore uh, absolute or apparent concentrations are going to be different. Um, in terms of activity, um, what we'll have is an activity coefficient, uh, which again describes, helps describe this non-ideal activity, uh, this non-ideal concentration, and that's going to be multiplied by the mole fraction of uh, uh, the substance in uh, an, an analysis to give us uh, the activity. Um, note that uh, we can also define activity in terms of the relationship between the fugacity uh, of a uh, compound and its fugacity in a reference state. So it allows us, again, to relate fugacity or the concentration, the fleeing tendency to uh, these non-ideal concentrations. The other terms in thermodynamics, again, to review this energy bookkeeping that we'd like to at least have a basic understanding of in terms of uh, respect for why things happen in the environment, uh, is enthalpy, which is designated by H, and entropy, which is designated by S. Both of these terms, these energy terms, contribute uh, to this uh, activity coefficient since they help to describe the non-ideal molecule-to-molecule interactions within a system. Now, to define enthalpy, it's the heat energy. As I've said, it's the sum of the inter- and intramolecular forces of a molecule, whereas energy, which is the freedom or chaos uh, term of uh, molecular interactions, is the contribution uh, to free energy of a molecule by uh, randomness of configuration, uh, orientation, and translation. And again, this uh, goes back to uh, all of our uh, uh, chemical thermodynamics that we learned in freshman chemistry. What this does for us, it helps us establish a system of energy bookkeeping. And again, this is uh, a way to kind of understand what will happen out in the environment subsequent to, for example, a contamination incident. There can be uh, a way to look at molecular changes in the environment, uh, various phage changes such as volatilization uh, and uh, chemical reaction. Uh, they require an energy change because in a certain sense, think about it, volatilization, a phase change, a chemical reaction uh, is a change of molecules, a change of state of molecules, a change of uh, molecular conformation, uh, molecular uh, shape size, uh, um, all of that uh, will happen with chemical reactivity. And so to bookkeep all of this, we'll take uh, this uh, basic equation of uh, free energy is equal to the heat enthalpy H minus uh, the temperature times the uh, uh, S, the entropy, uh, equaling, again, the chemical potential of the system. So thus, we can uh, calculate uh, the molar free energy changes, or delta G, for an environmental process. So if we have um, a, a way to define the, the state changes before and after 
we can look at the delta G, which is the change uh, of these uh, processes. Uh, uh, and we can then use the delta G, if you recall, to predict spontaneity. Uh, predicting spontaneity is extraordinarily uh, useful um, because it tells us uh, uh, not how fast things will happen, but in fact if things will happen spontaneously. Uh, we can also use uh, these delta G terms to estimate uh, equilibrium concentrations. And again, you can recall from uh, uh, freshman chemistry when you did electrochemistry, you could use the Nernst equation uh, and uh, its derivations from delta G to define if an electrochemical reaction involving uh, exchange of electrons was going to be spontaneous. Was it a spontaneous battery type uh, energy producing reaction? Or was it the reaction that you had to hook an external energy source up, the external battery, to drive the chemical reaction? Now, let's shift over. Now that we've uh, managed to take uh, uh, an entire, uh, perhaps, uh, three or four week uh, tutorial in chemical thermodynamics and reduce it down to a half dozen slides, let's do about the same thing with chemical kinetics. Again, just to review um, what you need to be uh, very aware of when you're talking about environmental chemistry in the context of environmental toxicology. Chemical kinetics is uh, very simply the study of systems whose chemical composition or energy is changing with time. And so this is a time-based phenomenon. Now, unlike thermodynamics, uh, where we can calculate and model the system, chemical kinetics uh, is actually an experimental discipline where we actually have to go to the lab and study chemical reactivity and actually determine uh, how fast things happen from a, uh, uh, a, uh, a laboratory study. Um, now, thermodynamics is very good at telling us whether things will or can happen. Uh, just because they can happen does not necessarily they will happen in uh, the time frame uh, that is realistic for us. Uh, you'll perhaps uh, have heard the term uh, geological time. Uh, there are, in fact, many environmental uh, processes um, that happen in the environment, but they happen in geological time. In other words, the kinetics is so slow, it in fact takes thousands or perhaps even millions of years uh, for uh, a chemical reaction uh, to really take place to any sort of observable degree. An example of that uh, will be the reaction of atmospheric uh, oxygen and nitrogen uh, with seawater. Uh, as it turns out, this particular chemical reaction of water plus nitrogen, atmospheric nitrogen, and atmospheric oxygen actually uh, has a, uh, an, uh, uh, a product of nitric acid. And in seawater, at the concentrations of oxygen and nitrogen that we currently have in the atmosphere, it would make uh, the seas extremely acidic, about 0.1 molar uh, nitric acid. The question is, in fact, if this uh, uh, delta G here is a minus 355 kilojoules per mole, uh, this, in fact, is a spontaneous chemical reaction when we take a look at it from a thermodynamics point of view. Okay, so this reaction is happening out there. The question that the students have to ask themselves is why don't we have oceans that are highly acidic uh, uh, solutions of 0.1 molar nitric acid? Well, as it turns out, this particular reaction, although chemically spontaneous, 
is a very, very slow reaction. So when we actually measure uh, this, it's extraordinarily slow. It's geological time. There's other sorts of competing reactions, carbonate uh, reactions and whatnot that happen uh, significantly faster. And so the pH of our oceans is highly buffered. And in fact, uh, we don't see this, although it's spontaneous, it is not of an environmental chemical concern. Now, one of the things we like to do in environmental chemistry is take a look at reaction pathway because mechanism can help determine chemical kinetics. We introduced this a little bit when we talked about abiotic environmental chemistry, when we looked at organic chemicals, and we looked at, for example, SN1 and SN2 reactions. There were various, uh, you saw in the designation of the formulas, uh, RLS, or rate limiting steps. Uh, that uh, essentially are the slowest step in, the, in a fairly complex reactive pathway. Uh, we have the ability uh, to be able to uh, study chemical reactions and uh, get a sense of the mechanism. Um, and when I say a sense, we can never fully determine exactly what is happening uh, because of the complexities of observing thing on, things on an atomic or molecular basis. However, via spectroscopic studies, uh, via various sorts of physical chemical uh, analysis processes, we can come up with very good descriptions of reaction pathways. Um, the mechanism of a reaction includes all of these individual steps along the pathway uh, from reactants to products. And so when you look at those SN1, SN2 uh, substitution reactions, you saw that there were various steps in terms of molecular associations of reactants yielding the final production of products. The rate of reaction, how fast a reaction happens, may be limited by any one of those steps. And again, you saw those rate limiting steps in those uh, nucleophilic reactions that happen in the environment. The molecular properties of the reactants and the products uh, do allow for a calculation of equilibrium constants for a reaction, but they do not allow us to calculate rate constants. And so we can get some thermodynamics. We can understand the delta G that uh, gives free energy changes associated with a chemical reaction and therefore predict its spontaneity, but we cannot predict how fast things are going to happen. And so chemical kinetics is a laboratory exercise. Now in chemical kinetics, we are uh, concerned about the rate of reaction. This is what tells us how fast things we will go. This rate of reaction is a function of several variables, typically the chemical composition, uh, what our concentration is, uh, the temperature. Uh, there's the old saying in chemical kinetics that uh, uh, a uh, increase by 10 degrees in uh, a chemical reaction is about a doubling of reaction rate. Um, things happen uh, when they have a higher level of ambient heat energy. Uh, it's also a function of the pressure and the volume of the reaction. If we take a look at kind of a standard representation of a chemical reaction, and we have uh, a, a number of moles of A and B uh, reacting to form uh, uh, products uh, P and Q, uh, P moles of uh, product P, Q moles of uh, product Q. We can define a rate uh, as in terms of moles per liter second uh, as a uh, disappearance. Uh, and so this is the 
change in the concentration, that's what these Ds mean, again, recalling, over a change in time. So the disappearance is a negative term here of reactant A, and this is divided by a coefficient of 1 over the number of moles in that reaction. That rate will also be defined as the disappearance of, uh, uh, can also be defined as the disappearance of reactant B. Or alternatively, we can take a look at observing the appearance of the product P or the observance of product Q out here. And again, uh, all of these are equal to either the disappearance or the appearance of any of the individual constituents in this reactive pathway as being an indicator of the rate of reaction. When we have this rate uh, uh, equation here, in this particular case, uh, the disappearance of a reactant, we can actually integrate uh, that to get uh, an integrated rate expression. But for this particular uh, representation, uh, many of you that are in chemical engineering type fields may have heard of Fenton's reaction. This is an oxidative pathway that's used to oxidize organic chemicals uh, in environmental contamination situations, spills, groundwater, soil. Um, this is an interesting reaction because uh, with ferrous iron uh, in an acidic environment, if you add uh, hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, you actually uh, oxidize the uh, iron to ferric iron to produce water, but the pathway here actually produces radicals, and primarily hydroxyl radicals, very potent oxidizers. And so it's important to understand Fenton's reaction, reaction kinetics in terms of its potential application to remediation or contamination control. Uh, we would represent the rate of reaction uh, as equal to the disappearance of the reactant peroxide over time, or alternatively, the disappearance of ferrous iron over time. Okay, And here in this, you see that we have a 1 over 2 uh, multiplicand here because we have a 2 moles in terms of the stoichiometry of this particular chemical equation. Now we can look at and examine the concentration of dependence. If we have high concentrations of reactants, this can drive uh, uh, a chemical reaction uh, faster. So if we have this uh, uh, rate equation, this uh, integrated rate equation, uh, that the rate is equal to some sort of uh, rate constant here, small k, multiplied by the concentration uh, raised to the exponent uh, of the uh, uh, number of moles of, of that particular material. Um, we can use that uh, to examine um, uh, the concentration dependence of a rate uh, uh, equation. Uh, one of the examples of doing this is actually an air pollution uh, uh, chemical reaction. When we drove our cars uh, today, our uh, internal combustion engines uh, produce nitric oxide, uh, NO. Uh, nitric oxide is an air uh, pollution uh, component uh, because what happens when it is released from our exhaust pipe, it goes on to uh, react with atmospheric oxygen. It can also react in the internal combustion engine as well. It produces uh, uh, nitrogen dioxide, NO2. NO2 has kind of got a caustic uh, uh, smell and flavor. Uh, if you've ever driven in urban areas with air pollution problems and seen a brown or an orange haze over the top of this urban area, what you're observing is uh, NO2. 
we can take a look at the concentration dependence of this NO2 reaction. If we have a rate uh, dNO2 over uh, uh, dT, one, one half of that, it can be represented as this rate constant times the concentration of the reactants, NO uh, raised to the uh, power of 2, uh, times the other reactant, O2, this concentration. And this is an enables us to identify uh, or to put into play the uh, concentration dependence of a chemical reaction. We can use uh, these uh, rate expressions. We can integrate these uh, and come up with uh, uh, some uh, information in terms of uh, modeling or predicting uh, the outcome, especially when we can identify the order of the reaction. Um, many chemical reactions that we're concerned about in environmental chemistry follow first order or pseudo first order chemical kinetics. Recalling again from your freshman chemistry orientation in this that pseudo first order just means that if we have two chemicals that are reacting, one of them is in large excess concentration compared to the other. And so we can reduce down the integrated rate expression to essentially eliminate uh, the one that's uh, a minor constituent uh, in terms of overall concentration. In terms of an integrated rate equation, here's our, our rate, our disappearance of a reactant uh, A over time. We get a rate constant uh, that is uh, uh, dependent, um, that is a multiplicant of that uh, concentration. We can integrate this expression upon integration, in fact, in a first order reaction such as this we get a uh, natural log of the concentration at any point in time uh, divided by the concentration at zero time is equal to a minus times the rate constant times time. Uh, what we do, again, in freshman chemistry is we plot uh, the uh, logarithm of A versus time, and that will be a nice straight line with a slope of k, that k is the uh, rate constant. And this is how, if you recall, we deduced uh, rate constants for these uh, uh, first order chemical reactions. The same sort of thing in a pseudo first order, um, but here, because uh, B is much, much more concentrated than A, uh, the change of concentration, the rate dependence will actually be limited by the uh, rate of, uh, by the concentration of uh, the B component in this chemical reaction. We also recall from uh, our uh, chemistry introduction that uh, there, uh, and, and also from uh, some of the discussions here in principles of environmental toxicology, that uh, we can use various uh, 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 kin kinetic descriptions to compare uh, rates of reaction of different chemicals. Uh, one of these is looking at the half-life or the T1 half of uh, a chemical reaction. It, again, is useful for comparing uh, uh, chemicals and how, for instance, they might react or degrade in the environment. Uh, you recall when we talked about the SN1, SN2 uh, nucleophilic substitution reactions, we can compare their lifetime, their half-lives uh, in environmental conditions. You saw that some of those were on the order of hours for water hydrolysis, and others were on the order of months or even years. Um, in first order, when we actually uh, just insert, uh, instead of the concentration, but the half 
concentration of the original concentration into the integrated rate expression, we can then just run this down and get uh, what these half-lives will be. Uh, for first order reaction, a T1 half is going to work out to 0.693 over K. Hopefully that is familiar to you. You should have all memorized that in freshman chemistry. You thought you'd never use it again, but in fact, uh, we use it all the time in environmental chemistry. In pseudo first order, um, T1 half is equal to log of 2 over the rate constant times the concentration of V. And then for second order, we have another one, a uh, rate equation, uh, half-life equation that was uh, very useful to determining second order rate expressions and revisiting uh, 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 half-lives of those kind of reactions. You recall also that we can determine, uh, at least empirically, uh, the temperature dependence of reaction rates. Uh, this is useful. Uh, the environment uh, is changing temperature. If you look at how things will happen in the wintertime, uh, engineers always have to do this for constructed uh, treatment systems. Uh, we also need to do this to have an identity of uh, what's going to happen and how fast it's going to happen. The differential in temperatures uh, in many parts of the world between uh, the uh, seasons of the year, uh, between summer and winter, uh, can be on the order of uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit or uh, about 30 degrees centigrade. Uh, these temperature oscillations do drive organic chemistry, things moving slower at uh, lower temperatures in terms of its, its temperature dependence. But you remember that we can develop this uh, uh, empirical relationship called the Arrhenius equa equation, uh, that the rate constant is, by, is uh, equal to this uh, uh, frequency factor, pre-exponential factor, times the exponent of an energy term, uh, an RT. And we can use graphical uh, interpretations of this uh, called an Arrhenius plot to determine the temperature dependence of uh, these reaction rates. And again, again, these are useful in environmental chemistry to look at the differences of how things will happen during the normal uh, cycling of temperature during a day or during different seasons. Now recall that uh, we have said that uh, most of the chemical reactivity we deal with in the environment can be first order or pseudo first order, and so that serves us quite well. But often, for example, we have to deal with more complex reactions like heterogeneous reactions where we have surface effects on reactions. And we talked about uh, one heterogeneous reaction uh, in Principles of Environmental Toxicology when we discussed the reaction mechanism of the ozone hole. Recall that we had a gas phase uh, uh, chlorine radical that was reacting on the surface of cloud droplets. So we have a liquid surface and a gas phase uh, reactant. This is a heterogeneous reaction. We can also have competitive reactions where we have com combinations of various elementary reactions that are used one or more of the same reactants. We can have uh, consecutive reactions where we have sequential processes. Uh, and some of these uh, uh, can happen at different rates. And the slowest of these will be the RLS, or rate limiting step, uh, associated uh, with this complex reactive pathway. We're going to switch over here um, in this uh, environmental chemodynamics lecture to talk about 
if we in fact have these molecular descriptions of processes, whether or not things will happen in thermodynamics and how fast they happen in chemical kinetics, let's talk about how we would use these to describe environmental systems. One of the ways we try and take uh, these complex environmental systems and reduce them down to where we can actually put them uh, on a piece of paper and actually use the tools of thermodynamics and kinetics in terms of predicting risk uh, is by uh, invoking compartments. And this is where we take the behavior and effects of various environmental pollutants uh, and we start compartmentalizing them in the various major compartments of the ecosphere. Uh, those compartments uh, include uh, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the lithosphere, and the biosphere. Okay? Um, you recall that here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, I have often invoked uh, the fifth compartment of the liposphere uh, because there are many chemicals of concern in environmental chemistry, environmental toxicology that seem to uh, uh, actually uh, sequester themselves uh, in uh, this uh, fifth compartment uh, of fat uh, in typically in organisms and in environmental uh, chemicals. When we take a look at uh, looking at these four or five major compartments uh, in terms of environmental chemodynamics, we are very interested in looking at the interfaces um, between those uh, compartments because quite often it's the interface that is going to actually change or challenge uh, the mobility and perhaps even the risk of that chemical uh, to living organisms. These interfaces are where these two different compartments meet and they share a common boundary. And so if we were to take this box model, if we were to reduce this down to a workable uh, situation of compartments or boxes, where these two boxes uh, connect is in fact an environmental interface. Uh, these are very important in terms of the dynamics because quite often we're looking at things like phase changes, uh, uh, changes in terms of released uh, potential for exposure. These are driven by the various physical chemical properties of the uh, uh, chemical itself. Uh, this is, in a certain sense, the nature of the beast. Not only the beast as the molecule of concern, but also the chemicals that make up uh, the particular compartment. We're very uh, concerned about the transport properties. Uh, for example, if something is in water, uh, perhaps volatilization is a way to decrease the concentration uh, from uh, the local water environment. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, heavy metal toxicity and various fungi that can actually bioalkylate heavy metals and make them into volatile substrates, helping to detoxify the local soil environment. So there, there is an energy input by the organism to detoxify the local environment by doing a phase change with something like a heavy metal, something you wouldn't necessarily consider uh, in terms of uh, the chemical transformation of a, a, a mineral heavy metal. When we uh, are talking about environmental chemodynamics, uh, we can reduce down all of these different compartments to the various uh, natural processes that might happen in terms of allowing uh, transformation uh, or transport from one uh, compartment to another. 
when we're talking about air, we, we're concerned with diffusion uh, and dispersion. Uh, if, in fact, uh, that rose uh, was just uh, uh, sitting there in a warm room for a while, you might enter the room and find that the smell has diffused uh, throughout the entire room and perhaps even uh, in the uh, entire household. Uh, in terms of the interaction of air and solar energy, we worry or are concerned about uh, photolysis and various potential for oxidation processes because we have numerous oxidants uh, such as uh, singlet oxygen and hydroxyl radicals from photochemical reactions in the atmosphere. We worry again about heterogeneous reactions on airborne particulates and also on cloud vapor as being some of the compartments and processes uh, in environmental chemodynamics of air. For water, uh, we're concerned with uh, not only this, the fundamental uh, solution properties and solubility, but also the ability of a chemical to sorb or uh, to adsorb. Uh, onto uh, a solid substrate, uh, and that can be an organic substrate like decaying piece of wood, or a mineral substrate uh, like an iron oxide uh, uh, mineral on a rock. We can have diffusion as well in uh, aqueous systems. We can have volatilization. Uh, we'll talk about Henry's constant or the ability for volatile substances to escape aqueous solutions. And as well, we can have biological uptake because we do, in fact, have critters of many trophic levels, uh, whether it be uh, single cell organisms or complex life forms that are in aqueous environments. And uh, biological uptake is a potential uh, transformation of chemicals in aqueous systems. Because uh, uh, these are environmental systems, there can be interaction, as we've seen in our photochemistry discussions, uh, photolysis, especially uh, near the surface of aqueous systems. We can have hydrolysis, or the reaction of the water molecule itself, and nucleophilic reactions with uh, uh, various uh, uh, environmental chemicals. We can have oxidation. We can have various uh, metabolisms associated with organisms. And we can have also uh, microbes uh, essentially cleaning up the environment with uh, a biodegradation process, uh, sometimes to the point of complete mineralization, taking complex organic molecules, reducing it to carbon dioxide and water. In soil compartments, uh, we are also concerned with uh, uh, the uh, interaction primarily of soil and uh, water in terms of uh, the ability of uh, 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 soil systems to sorb uh, certain types of environmental chemicals. Uh, there is a potential for runoff and also volatilization or leaching, uh, leaching sometimes into groundwater stores that are used to uh, service uh, uh, drinking water needs. And there can also be uh, an interaction with plant systems and in the root zone in terms of uh, biological uptake, and also in the soil-dwelling critters, uh, such as uh, earthworms. We can have chemical processes, such as hydrolysis and oxidation and reduction. Uh, there can also be photolysis, because soil systems uh, uh, do have the ability to absorb photons. Uh, there can also be various metabolic processes, soil microbes, uh, and biodegradation happening. And we discussed, for example, petroleum degraders that are used in land farming applications to degrade uh, petroleum hydrocarbon spills and uh, various contaminations associated with diesel and hydraulic fluids and gasoline. 
With Biota, these uh, are a little bit different uh, in terms of compartment and processes, in terms of uh, environmental chemodynamics. Uh, why are Biota different? Uh, mostly because they can move around. Uh, think of a duck that is feeding on a contaminated ecosystem, perhaps not particularly highly toxic, but in a certain sense, that duck has the ability to uh, take to the wind and uh, transport uh, those chemicals against an energy gradient because it has the ability to put energy, its own muscle energy, uh, into uh, the transport of those contaminants to another ecosystem. Uh, because of the cycle of life, uh, that duck becomes a part of that new ecosystem uh, when it dies. And there has been this up energy uh, transportation of contamination. Uh, in biota, we do have uptake. We have potential for metabolism, the biotransformation that we discussed in our basic toxicology lectures. Uh, there is also the potential for elimination of uh, metabolites. Uh, with lipid soluble and with uh, 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 bone uh, soluble uh, contaminants, we have the potential for sequestration. Uh, and again, uh, the potential for uh, transport. When biota uh, decompose, uh, it has uh, the potential to not only have concentrated contaminants, but also to transport those contaminants. Uh, and there can also be uh, a biotransformation or biodegradation of some complex molecules into uh, less toxic or more toxic uh, uh, metabolites. So to look at some of all of some of these uh, environmental processes and properties, uh, we can look at uh, physical transport uh, in terms of uh, the actions of the environment on chemicals. Um, in terms of physical transport, these can be from uh, meteorological uh, processes such as wind, uh, uh, air pressure uh, differences due to thermal and, and physical landmass changes. Uh, uh, allowing for uh, the development of winds to be able to transport uh, uh, not only volatile substances, but uh, air buoyant particles and dust-ups uh, from one place to another. There can be a biological uptake uh, where we have biomass and food chain effects. We can have sorption processes where the organic content of various soils and sediments can have an impact in terms of the sorption capacity uh, of a uh, uh, a sediment or a soil on uh, various types of chemicals. Um, these processes can be uh, driven by the adsorption and chemisorption uh, processes, uh, these reversible uh, adsorption processes and the somewhat irreversible chemisorption where we actually have a chemical reaction of one substance with a solid substrate. Other processes include things like volatilization. Uh, these can be, uh, can have an interaction uh, with various physical factors such as turbulence, wind velocity, various evaporation, aeration rates, organic matter. What I'm trying to set you up with, by the way, is the, a recognition of the complexity of the systems that we are fundamentally going to model. As you take a look at just a simple chemical uh, in a natural environment, all of these have to be determined as being major contributors or minor contributors in the development of a model. 
Uh, we'll have to look at, uh, in a site-specific way, runoff and the precipitation rate, uh, whether or not uh, in certain environments uh, the soil is a highly porous soil and therefore it limits the amount of runoff, or is it a clay pan soil that you have maximum runoff and perhaps shedding of some of the sediment uh, on the surface uh, of the soil. Uh, is there going to be leaching of uh, contaminants, some of these naturally occurring contaminants uh, uh, in terms of weathered mineral surfaces? What's the adsorption coefficient? Uh, how might uh, pH changes, things like acid rain, uh, develop uh, enhanced leaching of some of those weathered mineral surfaces? Uh, what about fallout and particulate uh, that are particulates that are, that are uh, taken up at one site and deposited on another uh, because of high winds? Uh, if you go to uh, uh, various satellite images, especially of the north coast of Africa in the summertime years, you'll see uh, some of the tremendous sandstorms uh, in the Mediterranean where hundreds of miles uh, crossing not only uh, uh, national boundaries, but also continent boundaries. Uh, the uh, winds of northern Africa uh, hoisting a tremendous amount of particulates up into the atmosphere and then depositing that uh, uh, miles and miles away. We also have to be uh, concerned in terms of environmental processes and properties with the potential for chemical reaction all along the way. Um, uh, it is a very reactive environment out there. Uh, some of these are catalyzed reactions. There can be photolysis. So photolysis is going to be a function of the solar irradiance or the photon density uh, that we have at certain frequencies. Uh, we talked about reaction quantum yield and we talked about photochemistry. How many photons are available and what is the yield of those photons for fundamental photochemical reactions? Um, we have to be concerned with the transmissivity of water. Um, are we talking about very clear water that might be uh, received a uh, fairly high photon flux uh, uh, through a, a fairly uh, deep surface area? Or is this particularly cloudy water where the suspended sediment particles uh, in this chocolate brown water are in fact going to absorb or uh, reflect uh, any sort of light photons uh, that might uh, enter the water? Uh, we'll need to be concerned with oxidation. Um, the world as we know it is a reasonably oxidizing uh, environment. Um, we have to be concerned with the concentration of oxidants, the power, the oxidation strength of those oxidants, and what might be the competing or retarding reactions of those reactants, uh, oxidation rea oxidizing reactants. We have to be concerned about uh, hydrolysis. Uh, is this chemical going to react at what pH? Uh, will there be uh, an interaction between sediment or soil uh, pH uh, as well as the aqueous system pH? Uh, will there be uh, an absence of oxidants, an absence of oxygen, uh, and the potential for uh, reduction uh, and perhaps the interaction of uh, ferrous iron uh, concentration uh, as uh, a potential uh, 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 reducing agent uh, associated with natural systems. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the role of uh, iron reducing bacteria here for a moment that uh, in fact uh, in the subsurface there is a potential, a very strong potential for uh, iron reducing bacteria to use 
the uh, chemical energy associated uh, with uh, iron substrates in a reduced environment as uh, a, not only a terminal electron acceptor, but as a major way to oxidize organic contaminants as a food source. There can also be uh, biological processes. Uh, chemicals can be biotransformed. Uh, this can be a function of the microorganism population. Uh, we can uh, have a, uh, an overall effect of biodegradation and in some cases biomineralization, again, where we uh, take a complex organic compound and we fully oxidize it to carbon dioxide and to water. Now what we're going to do here is go through uh, several uh, parameters uh, that are very useful in talking about environmental chemistry and the relationship of chemicals to various types of environmental systems. One of the most important is just the fundamental solubility in water of a particular chemical. Uh, this has to do with uh, the abundance of a chemical per unit volume in terms of its definition uh, in an aqueous uh, system. And that is defined, its, uh, its solubility in water is typically defined at 25 degrees C and one atmosphere, so standard temperature and pressure for the definitions that you might find in a textbook or a table. Um, the saturated solution concentration is an equilibrium situation where we have the solid uh, in equilibrium uh, in an aqueous phase. Uh, this C sub W is a saturated concentration. Uh, this is uh, nice to know because uh, we are not typically going to exceed the solubility uh, in water. This also uh, suggests that there will be some situations, and we'll talk about some of them in later lectures, where, for example, because we have approached this saturation, uh, if we have a significant amount of uh, parent material in the solid or concentrated liquid form, uh, because we have the release to the aqueous system dominated by uh, this uh, fundamental property of solubility, uh, what can happen is this can extend the amount of time that a contaminant uh, can actually bleed off, if you will, uh, its uh, 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 soluble uh, or solubilized from the parent compound into the surrounding water. Uh, we found this uh, with, for example, uh, PCBs in water. PCBs are an organic substrate. Uh, not particularly soluble, and so in the local environment around uh, a PCB uh, uh, pool, if you will, at the bottom of a lake, uh, there will be a saturation limited sort of transfer of PCB to that water over time, essentially saying that for a very, very long time there will be a bleeding off or a leaching of that parent compound into the surrounding water. So this is a problem that's going to be with us for a long, long time. We can also take a look at atmospheric water partitioning. And again, what we're doing here is we're partitioning uh, between two uh, compartments. In this particular case, uh, the gas phase compartment of the atmosphere and the water, uh, the aqueous phase uh, uh, component of water. Uh, this is an equilibrium partitioning, typically uh, described for organic compounds. Uh, and uh, this, again, is between the gas phase and aqueous solution. 
the partitioning coefficient, uh, again, just like the octanal water partitioning coefficient uh, that we talked about already, is called Henry's constant. Uh, it's either a capital H or a case of H. You'll see both designations out there. Uh, simply enough, it's just the ratio of the partial pressure of that uh, substance to uh, its concentration of the pure solute in, in water. Uh, there are fugacity implications, and so here's a way by determining the Henry's Law constant, and these are typically tabulated for materials in the same way we had you look up the octanol water partition coefficient for a range of chemicals uh, from a database, an online database. The same sort of thing uh, can be looked up for Henry's uh, Law partition coefficients uh, for a range of chemicals. Uh, these uh, uh, Henry's uh, constants uh, do have fugacity implications. If we have high vapor pressure uh, and uh, high fugacity in water, we should uh, actually have appreciable partition from water to air. In other words, that if we have this substance with these properties in water, over time, uh, that is going to volatilize out uh, in a fairly reasonable time frame. Now, we've introduced uh, partitioning uh, to this course when we talked about the octanol uh, water uh, partitioning coefficient. Uh, typically, these are organic solvent water partitionings. So the one we use mostly is octanol water partition. This KOW down here at the bottom of the slide uh, is the concentration in the octanol phase, the oil slick on top of the test tube, uh, over the water phase. And this helps us define if something is lipophilic or not in terms of environmental systems. Um, these are natural partitioning co uh, processes. Uh, there can be uh, a way to kind of look at uh, what happens in environmental systems. I've said a few times in here that sometimes fish can be considered like little sticks of butter floating around in aqueous systems. In terms of partition coefficients, they are the organic phase. Uh, they are the, uh, in terms of uh, an equilibrium relationship with organic molecules that are in the water. Uh, octanol is, in fact, a surrogate uh, for uh, uh, looking at this um, uh, partitioning processes. Um, various uh, pathways are uh, important in terms of looking at the relationship of organics to uh, uh, organic chemicals to uh, water. Uh, this can be a surrogate for various uh, soil or organic carbon processes in many environmental systems. There can be uh, also a solid water partitioning. Uh, these are typically called uh, adsorption isotherms. Uh, this is a uh, reversible uh, sequestration of a solute on a solid surface. There's uh, several different kinds of adsorption isotherms. Uh, they're called isotherms because when they're done in the laboratory, they're done at constant temperature. Uh, in a Freundlich uh, isotherm, uh, there is a Freundlich uh, constant uh, that is developed, and this actually just helps us relate the uh, concentration that's on the solid substrate, the solid surface, how it's been absorbed out of, adsorbed out of solution uh, this, from the concentration uh, in water. And you see that there's our uh, linear proportionality here. 
Um, and there's a constant here that actually is a case-by-case -case basis in terms of uh, the particular substrate and the particular, s uh, the particular solid substrate and the particular organic molecule that you're talking about, uh, or inorganic molecule as well. Uh, the idea is that we've just got a uh, partitioning coefficient, this K uh, here, our uh, distribution, and the relationship is the concentration on the solid divided by the concentration that remains in the water. So if you were to do this in an experimental basis, what would you do? You'd have a known concentration of a contaminant in water. You would add a solid substrate, mix it around perhaps for 24 hours. That substrate uh, uh, might be, for example, sand. Uh, and uh, the idea here is to see how much of your contaminant actually sticks to the solid surface, uh, how much remains in solution. Uh, and this will help us uh, identify some of the processes or model some of the processes that would happen out in the natural world. We can use this also in various applications, such as the ability of organic matter. Um, and typically, this is solid organic matter, not necessarily dissolved, but it can be both ways. But the partitioning of a chemical between the aqueous phase and the organic matter itself. Organic matter is sometimes uh, 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 abbreviated OM. And so we developed this KOM, this uh, organic matter water partition coefficient. We could jump down here to the bottom of the slide, and you can see that this is the same sort of thing. It's the concentration of your contaminant that is on the organic matter versus the concentration that remains in solution. Uh, this is especially important when you think about some of the waters you probably swum in, you know, whether it's a river or a lake or a pond. Uh, you will sometimes see uh, floating or suspended organic matter. Sometimes there's algae. Sometimes there's decayed leaves at the bottom of the pond. Uh, sometimes there will be dissolved substances that just give the water a tea color. And uh, what happens is these dissolved and suspended organic uh, molecules have the ability to sequester or partition uh, the uh, organic molecules. Uh, as it turns out, uh, some of this organic matter uh, in solution uh, have large uh, globular polymeric uh, chains. Uh, these humic fulvic acids are quite often polyanionic. Uh, they can actually, uh, uh, because they are organic, uh, organic molecules uh, typically, or sometimes, uh, especially if they can be a little bit on the nonpolar side, if they're larger molecules, they can actually uh, wrap around and form globules, typically with the more polar uh, functional groups on the outside, and sometimes the uh, uh, less polar group uh, uh, on the inside. Uh, and in fact, these globules become uh, little microregions, uh, especially in the inside of this globule where it is uh, hydrophobic, uh, an organic molecule that is also somewhat hydrophobic will find a very comfortable environment uh, inside uh, this organic matter. So there, you can have a capture or a solution region on a micro scale for these various neutral or nonpolar organic pollutants. And so we can actually uh, demonstrate that certain uh, lipophilic uh, substances, such as DDT or PCBs, actually will be more associated with the organic matter, the dissolved and suspended organic matter, in uh, a water solution than in the uh, just suspended in the water solution itself. This is kind of a basic sort of common sense sort of thing, but you have to kind of respect the complexity of natural waters to, to understand this well.
We can also have a biota water partitioning. Uh, this is uh, referred to sometimes as a bioconcentration factor, or BCF. Uh, it describes the partitioning of chemicals between uh, an aqueous source, uh, typically water source, and biota. Uh, typically what we do is uh, we define a BCF as the concentration that's in an organism and the concentration uh, that's in water. Uh, typically it's, it's a water concentration, but you can also uh, examine BCF, bioconcentration factors, looking at the concentration of one organism to, for instance, uh, a food substrate organism like uh, zooplankton and do the bioconcentration of the two trophic levels. Um, because we find that bioconcentration is often associated with uh, this solvation of lipophilic chemicals in adipose, adipose tissues, uh, we can uh, also view this as being somewhat this fat water partitioning that we've talked about many times in here. And we can uh, take a look at this uh, bioconcentration factor uh, in relationship to other empirical uh, relationships such as the octanol water partitioning coefficient. You would expect in most cases uh, for, for instance, lipophilic uh, chemical compounds, that uh, uh, a, uh, a high octanol water partition coefficient would also allow for a high bioconcentration factor, uh, that there would be a magnification of the food chain. The one thing you need to remember about this, because we're dealing with potential uh, equilibration and concentration-driven uh, con uh, uh, increases up the food chain, if we remove the source of chemical, we quite often witness a depuration, uh, which is where there will be a redistribution or a release because we don't have the concentration pressure on the organisms anymore. And so the overall concentration, once the source is removed, the concentration that's in the uh, biota will decrease over time. Now, in environmental systems, uh, we sometimes want to be able to use these compartment models to actually develop uh, model systems. Uh, there are many uh, uh, people in environmental chemistry, environmental toxicology, that use these processes that we've listed uh, here today in developing uh, very sophisticated models uh, that in many cases are very good at predicting outcome. Uh, remember our discussion about uh, uh, the ozone hole, uh, that was actually based on a prediction of fundamental photochemistry, atmospheric relationships, the development of a heterogeneous mechanism of atmospheric chemistry that actually allowed us to hypothesize and develop uh, a better understanding of the development of a natural uh, phenomenon, this ozone hole, from uh, anthropogenic uh, uh, release of the CFCs. Modeling is uh, an important part of what we do in science in terms of trying to reduce down this complex natural world into something that we can manage and do something about. Uh, this helps us with life cycle assessment. It helps us with uh, mitigating uh, contamination in the past, balancing our activities against the uh, environmental chem uh, quality and public health. 
A uh, quote from Schwarzenbach uh, in his Environmental Organic Chemistry textbook, a model is an imitation of reality which stresses those aspects which are assumed to be important, and then it emits all properties that are considered to be non-essential. So there's a choice here. Uh, we can obviously sit down uh, and review in this lecture all of the potential inputs, all of the different physical processes, chemical processes, kinetic and thermodynamic processes that might be happening in our system. But at some point in time, especially when we have uh, a lack of information, if we have a lack of information, we are going to be doing scientific guessing. The more guessing we do, the less likely our model is going to be accurate. And so we try to focus down these essential inputs to our model and then do the best job at, uh, that we can at collecting the data uh, as inputs or uh, at least to having good assessment of what that data is. Now, in terms of the strengths of, of a modeling approach, we use uh, mathematical models in uh, all areas of science. Uh, it allows us to simplify complex system. It allows us to uh, predict uh, chemical behaviors uh, in environmental uh, systems. We can use it to explain field data and various observations to make sense out of uh, our, what we uh, observe. Uh, we can use it to predict hypotheses. Uh, in a certain sense, we've done this with uh, global warming and the change of carbon dioxide levels and how we've modeled uh, what might happen in 50 or 100 years with regards to global warming. Uh, we can use this to design experiments to come up with the best uh, situation in terms of the investment of resources in laboratory studies. Models typically can be modified. We can make them less complex or more complex, uh, depending upon a case-by-case -case need. And we can allow for the development of alternative explanations as well for natural phenomena. There are some weaknesses. Uh, we can uh, oversimplify a situation. Uh, in fact, we might think we have a pretty good model of what's going on, when in fact, in a particular application, uh, it might be too simple to explain uh, a change in a fundamental variable or uh, involved in, in, a, in a new environmental system. Uh, models are never as good as uh, real observations and real data. Uh, and the other thing uh, that we face with modeling, uh, and those that are involved in modeling recognize this, is that uh, uh, there is an obsolescence. In a certain sense, approaches to modeling uh, have uh, become obsolete, and new models have developed that uh, uh, better describe uh, what nature is uh, serving us. Uh, the computer revolution of the last several decades has made modeling a little bit uh, easier than it was perhaps in the back uh, uh, history of uh, hand calculations. Uh, but even still, we can get lost in the complexity. I hope to end today's lecture with a, at least a one-page demonstration of a modeling uh, exercise that I was uh, involved in. When we take these uh, uh, approaches to modeling these complex environmental systems, at some point in time, we have to define what we are modeling and what we are not modeling. And typically, the approach is the development of what's referred to as a control volume. Uh, what we do is we try to uh, 
uh, establish uh, system boundaries and then start looking at the relationships of the different boxes, the control volumes uh, that we're dealing with with our air. Uh, we can uh, get too broad too fast and our uh, model becomes too generic and doesn't uh, teach us uh, much about uh, anything in terms of our specific application. And so defining boundaries is an important part of model system development. As an example, we'll take a look at what's referred to as a one-box mass balance model. This particular mass balance model is uh, perchloroethylene or PERC. Uh, PERC is uh, a dry cleaning solvent that uh, has some uh, use still, uh, even though it's a problematic chemical. It's uh, C2Cl4. This is uh, the electron distribution, the yellows being the chlorines in this particular molecule. The model that we're going to talk about is a um, uh, the air-water exchange in a ponded system. Uh, it's uh, drain. It's uh, fed and drained by a creek. Uh, there is some boundary fluxes that we can define. Uh, we'll just define the letter G. This isn't the Gibbs free energy. This is uh, just a, a term here. This is the exchange of this perchloroethylene between the water and the atmosphere. Uh, the pond to atmosphere uh, flux, uh, which is the mass movement from the pond to the atmosphere, we can just arbitrarily call the positive direction. Uh, we can define uh, the term S as the net removal of the, the perchloroethylene to the sediment that's in that particular pond. And then within the pond, there might be some microbes uh, that actually uh, find uh, perchloroethylene uh, as a food substrate. And so there might be some biodegradation processes as well that uh, somewhat compete with the volatilization processes. This is a figure to kind of uh, uh, graphically illustrate uh, what we're talking about in this ponded ecosystem. And so we've got, uh, a, it's a stream-fed pond, so we have a contaminant input. And since it's drained at the other end, we have a contaminant output uh, O here. So we have input defined as I, output defined as O. Remember that we defined the flux uh, G, the release of volatiles, uh, in this direction as positive. This is the perchloroethylene uh, C2Cl4 molecule. There's a certain area of the pond. There is a system boundary. We're going to go ahead and define that as the interface uh, relationship between sediment and the water itself. Uh, there will be a mass and volume of that water. And then we've talked about uh, two other dissipation rates of this chemical. Uh, and this is a transboundary relationship with the sediment, or S. And then also this biodegradation rate, R, where in fact uh, there's some level of degradation that's happening in this pond from this uh, particular contaminant. So we've defined our system, we've defined our inputs, our outputs, uh, and our fluxes. How do we put that into a mathematical equation? We can look at that as the change uh, in the mass and the control volumes. That's d uh, over time, dd, dt. And that's equal to, very simply, if we set this up as the sum of the inputs uh, plus any sort of internal production. This is a generic equation. There's not going to be an internal production in this particular case because environmental systems don't make perchloroethylene. So uh, we have the inputs plus any sort of potential for internal production. But in terms of uh, this change over time, we're going to have to also look at the sum of the outputs, what's being uh, released uh, through all of the uh, sediment biodegradation, volatilization, and uh, release out of the uh, stream exit. 
um, minus uh, the internal sinks that we find. And so if we take a look at the change in mass of perchloroethylene over time, dmdt, um, that is equal to, again, the rate, uh, the input rate from the stream that's heading in minus the output rate in terms of the, the uh, stream that's uh, draining this particular pond, uh, minus the flux of the perchloroethylene in terms of the volatilization, which you'll have to respect is going to be a function of Henry's Law constant, minus the reaction or biodegradation associated with microbial activity in the, in the pond, and minus the uh, sediment uh, uh, adsorption uh, or reaction. And so this gives us a general mathematical relationship, which we then can start looking at solving all of the inputs. And so if we have this dmdt is equal to all of these different rates, i minus o minus g minus r minus s, we can assume that at any point in time that this is a steady state system. Everything is, is, not, uh, is, is in a steady state, it's not changing. And if dmdt is equal to zero, we can also assume that the, in this particular case, and we'll have to justify these assumptions, that the uh, sediment degradation rate and the biodegradation rates are much, much smaller rates of change than, for example, the influent, which is coming in from a contaminated area, maybe up, upstream, and maybe the mass that is draining out of this particular ponded system, out of our control volume. And then also the gas transport, the gas exchange flux at the atmospheric uh, interface with the water. So since we've assumed steady state, the MDT is equal to zero, we can identify all of these and especially minimizing these two, we can calculate that in fact uh, this G is equal to the input minus the output. And so that makes physiologic, I mean not physical sense to you, if you take a look at the input, and you take a look at what's draining out, that anything that's different, uh, because we've assumed that these other rates are going to be very small, that in fact uh, the difference between that is what's being exchanged at the gas, uh, at the atmospheric interface. So we can then subtract uh, the output from the input mass over a time period, and this net loss of PERC uh, will be the loss to the atmosphere by the system. And so this is a one-box model. We've done some simplifying assumptions, and this is what we do in modeling to come up with what will we would predict to be the concentrations over time. Now, this is a very simplistic approach. We can go to much more complex approaches. We can do dynamic box models. We can make models as complex as anybody cares to spend in terms of the time and the input data. You talk about very large lakes with different temperatures at different depths and different uh, turnovers of water. All of these uh, inputs can become uh, tremendously complex and uh, good employment security for, for modelers. Uh, we do, in some applications, require dynamic models to describe uh, the effects of various uh, system variables that are changing. Uh, so our assumption of steady state, dmdt, the change in the mass over time, is not equal to zero. 
And so in this particular case, uh, we cannot come up with a steady-state assumption, which simplifies our life quite easily. So we actually have to do all of the calculations. We can also have uh, multiple boxes uh, and not just a one-box model. We can have random factors, random transport. We can have wind events, storms. Uh, we can have diurnal variations. Uh, we can have uh, photons during the day and no photons in, in terms of photochemical reactions at night. Uh, these dynamic models require uh, description of various system processes. There, we have to invoke various theories, relationships, and imply uh, and develop data for various dynamic transport and various transformation processes. An example might be, for instance, in that uh, gas flux exchange. Uh, that might not be just a simple Henry's term or volatilization coefficient. It might be a function of the area, the surface of the pond, uh, the air-water transfer velocity, uh, the air-water concentration, and Henry's law constant, such that we get uh, a lot more variables introduced into these models just for that one particular term. We might also want to take a look at in situ reaction of the chemical, uh, various hydrolysis, photolysis, uh, redox reactions uh, as a function of pH, uh, temperature, light intensity. We'll need sometimes to take a look at mass transfer of the chemical at the water surface uh, due to various wind velocity events, temperature changes, reaction of the chemical uh, in the sediments, uh, sequestration, sorption, various uh, degradation and uh, bioturbidation or the turnover from soil or sediment dwelling insects. Uh, we'll need to look at biological uptake and transformation via metabolism, uh, various sequestration and, and elimination uh, processes from, from all of these uh, different uh, chemicals. So you can see that as we start getting into the modeling field, uh, good modelers uh, need to develop good approaches to uh, coming up with all of these system variables and identifying assumptions where we can make our lives a little bit simpler uh, in terms of coming up with a definitive model that helps us predict reality for the future. Some of the other uh, inputs that might be uh, required, uh, the inlet uh, input of contaminants at various depths. Uh, again, uh, uh, anybody that has ever gone diving in a, in a freshwater ecosystem knows that the surface water is significantly warmer than the deeper water. There can be thermoclines and changes of concentration dynamics at various levels. There can be uh, outflow of the water body at different uh, 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 surface and subsurface levels. There can be a mixing of surface water with uh, groundwaters and deeper waters. Uh, for example, in some environments, uh, a lot of the flow in, in a uh, ponded ecosystem can be in just a surface flow, and in fact, the very deep subflows uh, can be somewhat static. Uh, there can be in situ production of particulates uh, in phytoplanktons and biological processes. There can be various sorption dynamics, uh, not only on uh, in solution, but also in suspended matter. There are uh, many uh, relationships that we can develop in terms of various partitions. The, they do require an understanding of uh, chemical partitioning, transformation, and transport uh, to describe all of these equilibrium relationships. Uh, these relationships, once we've defined them, understood their kinetics, understood their thermodynamics, help us develop models that are robust and very useful and do help us uh, predict. It's always easier and less expensive
expensive to do a model than to do an actual system analysis development trying to identify all the different variables in all of the different potential uh, natural sites that uh, contamination may impact. This uh, final slide, um, I wanted to give you again a, a sense of the complexity of modeling. This is uh, output of a selenium uh, sheep uh, model uh, in terms of potential toxicity of selenium impacted uh, grazing areas uh, to sheep survival. Uh, this is from a program called Vensim. Uh, this is a graduate student. Uh, all I wanted to show you here is uh, this is one page of uh, a very highly developed model in terms of looking at all of the potential intakes. Uh, some of these intakes have to do with plant uh, levels of selenium, water levels of selenium. Uh, the amount of exposure, microbial processes. Uh, the 50 or so arrows you see just on this page have to do with actual mathematical relationships and modeling of variables and certain types of assumptions. Uh, we can vary those assumptions in terms of fundamental concentrations with these toggles here, here, here in terms of food uptake and the type of grasses. Uh, we know how certain types of plants sequester selenium. Uh, we can toggle in certain types of conditions, create a dynamic model. The output is down here. This is the time on this axis. This is the concentration of selenium on this axis, zero to two parts per million. One part per million would be considered to be a threshold for toxicity in the ovine species. You can see that as these animals are put on seleniferous pastures, you can see that there's a rapid increase in this model. Uh, of selenium, a plateauing, especially as it starts, uh, they become acclimated a little bit, but there's still an increase. But you can see that if we do take these animals off this selenium seleniferous pastures at this point in time, there is a decrease in concentration over time. It looks a little bit like an exponential decrease. This is a depuration. That depuration allows us to not only predict what's going to happen or the safe amounts of time that these animals can spend near seleniferous forage, but also how long it will take them to recover from higher levels than required of selenium in their diets. And so this gives you uh, uh, a uh, thorough review, hopefully, and introduction to uh, environmental chemodynamics, how we use chemodynamics to understand the natural uh, world around us. Next time what we'll do is we'll, we'll delve a little bit more into the environmental transport phenomena, finish up uh, this segment of the physical processes of, of toxicology, how tox toxicants uh, uh, might migrate and uh, be transported throughout the natural world around us. Until that time, we'll see you. Thank you so much.